0: Will, Will probably won't say so, but I'm going to go ahead and brag for him. He actually wrote that song, and it's the first time I heard it. It's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, man, worship kind of got to me tonight. Uh, please open up your Bibles to Second uh, Timothy chapter 1. We're going to keep going uh, through Timothy and... Uh, Second Timothy in the next couple of weeks as we get to Advent, and 2 Timothy is a little shorter, I'll go pretty quick here, so, um, yeah, let's, uh, sorry, I'm a little thrown off. Um, 2 Timothy, our reading tonight is, uh, going to be in chapter 1, verses 3 to 18, and, uh, so please join me in the scripture reading this evening. I thank God who I serve as my forefathers did. With a clear conscience, as night as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. It is for this reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel, by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. And when you heard from me, Keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Videlius and Hermo- Hermogenes. Excuse me. May the Lord show you mercy on the household of Onesophorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord pray you that you find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways you helped me in Ephesus. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tonight, I've, I've been talking the sermon. Are you, or are we convinced? And if you notice, the Apostle Paul uses that word convinced a handful of times in that passage. I want to Actually, um, Clark, if you could, could you go back to the um, third song, second song in the worship set with the blue background about stepping out into the waters? The other one before. Uh, yeah. Go forward one slide. Go one more. Yeah. So <laughs> this is sometimes just wanted to share with you. We were singing that song. Um, I thought about this passage and what the Apostle Paul was sharing with Timothy. And has anyone ever been to the ocean where there's a sandbar? And, and, and you go out, and if you've never been there or a lake where there's a sandbar, what it essentially is, is from the tides. It creates a bar of sand out from the shore. And so when you go out, you have to actually go out deep in the water. And you swim a little ways until you find this nice spot. It's kind of like a little island, but it's submerged, so you can stand and sit and rest and, and that sort of thing. I was thinking about this song where my feet fail and fear surrounds me. You know, many of us in life, this is kind of an allusion to what God is doing. And and I was thinking about this passage and God has called us to to trust him. And he says, hey, swim out, there's a sandbar where you can rest. And so we swim out and we rest on the sandbar and we think, wow, this God's pretty good. But then God asks us to go a little further, and we sometimes wonder, but I don't see the same bar. And he asks us to go where our feet may fail and fear surrounds us. But as this psalm so beautifully says, that his grace abounds all the more in those deep waters. And so as we continue tonight in this passage in Timothy, I want you to keep that delusion in your mind. Because First Timothy was was about godliness and about training and about preventing false teaching. But Second Timothy is much more just about perseverance and trust in the Lord. See, the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote this book to Timothy, when he wrote this letter to Timothy. And this was chronologically the last letter we have from the Apostle Paul. Odds are he died about a year later um, from church tradition. from what we know, he was most likely beheaded under the emperor Nero. And so Paul, in his kind of final words, his last address, his his last will and testament as a pastor, says to Timothy, hey, um, there's some things you need to know. And tonight, the two things I want to point out specifically are these generational faithfulness. The faith we pass on to to those after us and to those in our families and those we have a relationship with. And this idea of being convinced, are we convinced that God is there even if we swim out past that sandbar and we're not sure? Are we convinced that his grace will abound and he will keep us safe? And so the first thing, take a look at the scripture, I want to look at the first couple of verses we read, verses 3 through 7. Paul talks about this thing with Timothy that I always call generational faithfulness. If you've never heard this term before, if you're not familiar with it, it's essentially that we become Christians or people have in God based on how they grew up based on their family, based on their parents and we see that with Timothy he says, hey Timothy, I remember all the things you've gone through and I know that you have sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother and in your mother I love this passage because it reminds me of the faith or the impact our faith has on those people that we love in this world and not only that, but that Paul gives it the, the title of the descriptor, that it's alive, that this faith lives in Timothy, and that he got this faith from his mother and from his grandmother, that it is alive and it is living in him. And so he says, be confident. Be confident in your faith that you received from your, the history of your family. And some of us in this room today can, can resonate with this. Some of us are Christians in this room because our parents were Christians. Some of us are Christians in this room because our grandparents and great-grandparents were Christians. Some of us were Christians before we even knew we were Christians, because we just got brought to church, and, and, and people were praying for us, and we, we, we can't even... You know, I, I talk with my wife about this all the time. She has a family where her great-grandfather was a pastor, and her great-grandfather was praying for her before her parents were even married. But he was praying for his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren, and it, some people just have this time. I'm not really sure. When I became a Christian, I've kind of just been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. And and I think about this, and I think of, wow, that's great. You know, some people have this family background where they were given these tools to succeed and and these abilities to, to, to go to church and to have this sort of thing that we see here. It's amazing. Some of us... someone. If you think about it as a spectrum, you know, there's those who sort of this, this this wonderful generational faithfulness that is just so beautiful and so wonderful. And then there's this kind of middle ground, right? Where, you know, we didn't have perfect families. We didn't have the best parents or grandparents, but, but there were some Christians. There was one or two. There was three or four Christians. And there was maybe one side of our family that were Christians. You know, it wasn't always perfect, but it helped lay the foundation. It motivated you to say, wow, what's what's going on with do they act this way? This is more my story. Um, next week you'll actually get to meet my parents. They're they're coming this week to visit and they'll be here next Sunday and, and this was what I saw. You know, my mom became a, a Christian when I was, when I was eight or nine years old. And, and I remember a very, very stark difference between when she was not taking us to church and not reading her Bible to when she began doing all of these things. I remember every morning She was one of these who would get up before the sun, and she'd make a pot of coffee or tea, and she would sit in silence and read the Bible. And she took it really seriously, and we got really, really scared to interrupt her. And it was one of those things where, you know, the little kid gets up, and you kind of walk into the kitchen, and you go to get cereal or something, and and you absolutely slam the cupboard, and you just kind of, you wait to see if she's going to yell to go back in your room and be quiet. That's how serious my mom was about her faith and about her reading scripture. My family has a lot of issues, and I come from a lot of weirdness. But I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, that's enough for me to buy in. I'll give it a shot because it looks better than the alternative. Because I had seen the alternative, and I had seen the contrast. And even though I don't come from a family of generational faithfulness, I saw enough in one or two people to say, okay, I'll try it. Or maybe, working our way down the spectrum, you don't have either of those things or didn't. Maybe you've done it on your own. Maybe you're the only one. Maybe the Lord called you and you bravely answered. Like this man we heard about in the shop. who said, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Left it all behind to be the weird black sheep Christian of the family. Here's the cool thing about generational faithfulness. Is it starts with you now. You have the option to be the grandmother here. You have the option to be the mother here. Others are looking to you and wondering if it's worth buying into. And they see you, even if you are the only one in your family, in your circles, they see you and they wonder, what's this all about? And the great thing is, too, is that it doesn't just go down, it can also go up. It can just kind of spread like a wildfire. Real briefly, story, my parents, who you'll, again, who I said will be here soon, um, it's my mom and actually my stepfather. In 15 or 20 years ago, neither of them were Christians or walking with the Lord. And they each had three kids. It was actually kind of like that show, The Brady Bunch. You know, my mom had two boys and a girl, and he had two girls and a boy. And so now there's six of us, um, three boys and three girls. faithfulness, when we talk about this, is not just those people immediately below you or your children or your children's children. What we see here is the ability to affect and to inspire and to motivate everyone you come in contact with. If you're the only Christian in your family, God may want you to be an example to your parents or to your grandparents. Generational faithfulness is a powerful thing. And God uses family in amazing ways. And I want to say one thing briefly here, though, as well. There's no guarantee it works out perfectly. Many people know that as parents, you try to raise your child the way they should go, but they still do their own thing. What's happening here, and what I believe this is talking about, is the power behind trend of faith. Does that make sense? A trend. It's not an absolute, but it's a setting a trajectory or setting a path to say, we will follow the Lord. Right? As for me and my house, we will follow the Lord. And this is what Timothy is the product of. But then, there's another side of things. There is a different side of things. What many of us may know, may be familiar with generational sin, if there's generational faith, then I also believe that there is a thing called generational sin. And if we don't leave behind, if you don't leave behind a legacy of faith and hope and love and above, above all else love, what have you left for those people around you? What example are you setting for those people you interact with? And even though Christianity is full of all of these tensions, right, all of these tensions that are tough, Because I think this is one of them. Our our faith is between us and God. Our faith is is a relationship, and it's personal, and it's intimate. But but, but I see here, and, and from my own experience, I see that it also greatly affects others. It greatly influences those around us. And how do we balance this? Well, I think that our faithfulness and growing in faith is contagious. I think that our faithfulness, as Paul said, is alive. Remember what he said about the scriptures, that the word of God is living and active. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And I think if that's true, then we also have to realize that our sin and our shortcomings can also be alive and active and affect those around us in the same way. And so then what do we do? How do we proceed? I think Paul tells us. Paul says, Timothy, you are a product of this great faithfulness. And if you look at verse 4, he says, I remember your tears. I recall. I remember, Timothy, your struggle. I know what you've been through. We've cried together. So the second thing I want to bring up is, are we convinced of this? Are we convinced this is the best way? Are we convinced that Jesus was right and that we ought to commit to this, to this faithfulness, to this infectious, alive, living faith? I want to reread verses 8 to a little bit after that, I think 12. Look at Paul's argument and how he lays this out. He says, Do not be ashamed, Timothy. Do not be ashamed, brothers and sisters in Christ, to testify about our Lord or be ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. See, Paul is suffering. In verse 8, He's he's, he's telling Timothy, I'm in jail, and I'm telling you this because I want you to be praying for me. I want you to join in my sufferings, Timothy. Don't be ashamed. Join with me in suffering. Why? Because Christ's grace abounds in these deep waters. Because Christ's grace covers us, and we know, as we'll for the offering, we know. That we are, our, our life is safe with Him, and how we know that He has died, and that we have eternity with our God. And if we study, this is what's amazing to me: is many people struggle with the Old Testament. You guys ever met someone who just read, or maybe maybe you do, maybe you read it and you just think, I don't understand what Hezekiah purifying the temple in Second Chronicles twenty-nine has to do with Jesus. That was pretty obvious, but maybe you know the Levites, or maybe. It's all about grace and mercy. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, I am convinced of God's mercy in verse 12. I am convinced. That is why I'm suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Paul is saying, hey, listen, I gave Christ my life when I became a Christian. I gave Christ my very life, and he is holding it safe, so therefore I'm not worried about prison. And I would even ask you, Timothy, to join with me in praying for me while I'm in prison. And have the same mentality. That is why I'm willing to suffer. That is why he is not afraid. His argument here is so great. But yet we look, and we hear this word suffering. And if you're like me, immediately you just kind of go, I don't want to suffering. I really like the mountaintop experiences with God. I really like the joy and the love and the comfort of the suffering. I'm not ready for that. I want to say this about suffering. A couple of things. One, there's multiple types and layers to this. I don't want to talk about the problem of evil tonight. I don't want to talk about why bad things happen. It's a bigger conversation. But I do want to say this, and this is something I believe, and this is something that comes from experience. Suffering is nothing to be afraid of is also not something that we seek out. What I mean by that is, is, if you're familiar with the words masochism or asceticism, early Christians thought that they should punish themselves to suffer so that they could experience God. It, it's not the point. See, God doesn't want us whipping ourselves when we sin. God will want us asking for his forgiveness. And In the same way, when our brother and sister in Christ is suffering, we don't shy away from it, but we join in that suffering with them. God wants us to join with others who are suffering near us and show them love and mercy. And when we encounter suffering, we don't run from it. But we become people of prayer and people of community who come around those who are suffering, that they would know they are loved and that they can find strength. And I would say this, what God doesn't want when we think about suffering, when you think about suffering, when you think about hardships, the one thing God does not want of his mercy. sand like an ostrich and pretend it's not happening. Because then what it does, well, let me say this, when we pretend that suffering is not happening, we we avoid suffering and pain and so we isolate ourselves and we say, that's not happening, it's not real, I don't want to be a part of that. But then when someone around us is suffering or someone around us is in pain, we don't know how to relate to them, we don't know how to be with them because we've been avoiding We've been isolating ourselves when we ignore suffering. And and in doing so, what we've done is we've kept God from showing us more of his grace. Think about that. When we avoid all suffering and isolate ourselves from people who are suffering, we're saying to God, hey, listen, I know you want us to pray and you want us to come together and hear hear how good you are and, and find a way, like I said, in all of Scripture to see the grace and mercy of God we isolate ourselves and we keep ourselves from seeing the power of God. And we isolate ourselves and we become individuals and we pull away from community. And God's whole purpose of the church is to come together and strengthen and to bear with one another in love as it says in Ephesians 4. And so I believe when Paul says to join with him in suffering, he's not asking Christians to be masochistic or to to pursue asceticism and and make things about punishing themselves, but to say how can I be praying for my brother and sister in Christ? How can I help the person who needs comfort? How can I spend more time with the widow? How can I help the poor? How can I comfort the lonely? The loneliness one is a big one for me because, and we've all heard about it, that Switzerland is full of people, and all these People come from all over. But it's also, it says, the loneliest country for expats. Many of you in this room know what that feels like. And so when the Apostle Paul says, join with me in suffering, what do we do? We come together. And we join with one another in this room. And we join with each other. And we pray for each other. And we live life together. Because the Apostle Paul was convinced. So my question for you is, are you convinced? Are you on high, and that the temporary nature of this life exists so that we can love and help others and create a legacy of generational faith. Paul was willing to do anything for God, and he asks us to do the same. If you would like, uh, I want to end with this passage. It's in Romans chapter 8. And if you would be familiar with it, we're going to be singing a song that is word for word, this verse. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Now keep in mind, this letter was written to the Roman church. The very city that would one day imprison Paul and put him to death. And Paul says this to the church in Rome. Verse 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are we convinced that are we convinced that we can endure suffering? Are we convinced that there are people around us who may need to see our example and trust that God will do what he wants to do through us? Are we convinced that we cannot shy away from suffering and pain, and that we can join in it with others who need comfort and love, that we can visit the sick and the poor and the lonely, that we can give sacrificially of ourselves and our time, that we would not isolate ourselves from the grace of God, but that we would live and bask like sunlight in the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we are all convinced of this, convinced of the mercy and the love of God, and that it would lead us to a life of strength and inspiration for those around us who see us, and that we would all leave behind lasting legacies of generational faith, with our co-workers, with our families, with everyone we come in contact with. Let's pray. God, you were good. Lord, I think of the Apostle Paul, and sometimes I wonder how he did it. But it's nights like tonight are reminded. Lord, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, by a great church that is your bride whom you love. Let us encourage one another. Let us strengthen one another. Let us join in each other's sufferings. And let us rejoice in each other's joys. Father, we know you love us. We know you have forgiven us. And we know through the cross your grace is made complete. And we rest in that tonight. Lord, as we continue in worship, may we remember your promises to us. Amen. We pray.